Okay, you can uh, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter one. As you're doing that, um, I wanna just make a couple comments about marriage and weddings. Um, I think I'm doing a wedding this week. If that's the case, could somebody give me a thumbs up real quick? Just so I, okay, yeah. <clears throat> I just didn't know in the moment if it's totally public and I only see 50% of the couple. And so <laughs> I hope it's still a couple. <clears throat> but this time next week, we should be celebrating a new marriage in our church, which I think is wonderful. So uh, you could tell it, it's upstairs, but could we just, uh, Jesse and Soren. And then I know I'm gonna get in trouble for this, and I risk um, offending some people so badly that though they are newcomers, they may never come back to our church. Um, but in the room today is someone that was in my youth group, and in the first small group that I ever led, and he was 11 years old. And uh, over the last year and a half or so, he's shown up occasionally in our service because just education and where he's at career-wise right now, he's been doing some training and experience on the island. And we got together several months ago and he wanted to ask me some questions, bigger things about life and so on. Not that I have the answers to it. In fact, I really just sat silently for most of the time. But he was wondering about some things, and uh, he's had this person in his life for a while, and she seems absolutely terrific, and anyway, so I gave my thoughts on it, and anyways, he showed up in our second service last week, and I thought, okay, he's doing some work stuff on the island here again, and I went and gave him a hug, and I'm like, hey, I was going to text you, any update on this situation? He said, yeah, uh, proposed, engaged, married, honeymooned, moved to Comox. And I was slain in the spirit. No. But I didn't believe him <laughs> about any of it. But it's all true. And so for those who can see, here's Mike and Natalie. And uh, I, I feel so old. He's in his 30s and he's into an awesome career. And... Uh, Evidently, I'm not in my 20s anymore, so anyway. Um, there will be more to say on marriage a little later in the message. Okay, where are we? Revelation chapter 1. Um, I hope most of you had the opportunity to um, be with us last week and get into the first part of this message, which was really the introduction to the introduction to the revelation. And um, what we're doing these last two weeks of June is really kind of uh, preparing ourselves for the lengthy and exciting journey through this dynamic book that is meant to speak to all of us in riveting ways. It, um, how many of you would say, I've been intimidated by Revelation? How many might say, I think I still am? <laughs> That's okay. That's totally okay. But hopefully as we keep journeying forward, we're going to find that there are tools that help us to um, take some of the pressure off of the burden of expecting Revelation to be much more than God ever designed it to be. He meant for it to be a letter to encourage your soul, to speak to your heart, for you to actually get great understanding in and through. And so we're going to continue journeying through that together. If you missed last Sunday, um, I encourage you to do two things. In our e-bulletin, each week uh, one of our pastors writes what we call as a dearly beloved. It's a blog love letter to our congregation once a week, and so um, I wrote on the introduction in case anybody wanted to copy and paste and store some of those notes somewhere just to help you for future references. You go through Revelation in your future. That's one thing you can do that'll help you. Another thing you can do is go online and just rewatch the message from last week if you missed it, and that will help you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you are a God who speaks. Hmm. In the ancient world, there were so many idols, but the, their millions of followers never heard a word from one of them. In our world today, there are all kinds of gods, sex, power, money, but they never talk to us. But the living, risen Christ does. So today, we open our hearts to you. Amen. Amen. Okay, so to set the stage and prepare our hearts for where we're going in the text today, I just by way of reminder to some of you, or introduction to others. We have a fellow named John, many people would believe, and I think I'm on that side of the camp, that this is John the Apostle. Um, and he's on an island called Patmos. 
which is, you know, it's off the coast of Turkey right now. Back then it was ancient Greece, um, which was part of the Roman Empire. And uh, there was a quarry on Patmos. There were stones that were taken out of there and used for the building of the Roman Empire. And there must have been some sort of prison encampment of some kind there. It was a way that certain unruly people in the Roman Empire could be sent away and interfere, uh, you know, unable to interfere any longer with the goings-on in the Roman Empire, and they were just stuck in a, a rock farm. And uh, that's where John is. Now, at this time, it's likely in the 90s AD of the first century. And so there is a newer emperor that rose to power in the 80s, first century AD, and his name is Domitian, and he's ruthless. There has sort of been things going from bad to worse to bad to worse to worse to worse to worse when it comes to the succession of emperors that were taking power in Rome at that time. And Domitian had a long tenure, and so by the 90s, he's been in power for about a decade at least, and he's a very, very insecure leader, and he has a lot of power. And that's a, a terribly dangerous scenario, isn't it? And so he starts insisting that people refer to him as Lord and God. That's familiar language, isn't it? So he's borrowing thoughts from other faiths, saying, well, that's interesting. You might think that about your gods, but guess who I am? And so he thinks he's Lord and God. And he actually had various checkpoints at various places throughout the Roman Empire where Roman citizens would have to declare their allegiance to him, the Caesar, as if he was Lord. And so there would be bowls of incense and fire and altars. And uh, Roman citizens were required when they were at those checkpoints, whether it was at a community event or some games, uh, maybe it was a trade guild that was meeting for a meal, whatever it was, or maybe it was temple worship. They might be worshiping one of their Roman gods, but they also had this bowl of incense where they were to grab some of the incense, toss it onto the altar, and say, Caesar is Lord. Now, for the Roman people, no big deal. They were polytheistic. They had lots of different gods, so they're like, well, sure. If we say that uh, Domitian is God, no big deal. Keeps us alive. But to monotheistic people of faith, the Christians, it was a big deal because it put them in a position where they had to decide, is Caesar Lord or is Jesus Lord? And can I flippantly pretend that Caesar's Lord to just keep myself alive, or does that deny my faith? In 92 AD, um, Domitian, because he was threatened by the growth of the Christian movement, started um, ramping up persecution. And in 92, he killed records, historical records would say he killed at least 40,000 Christians that year, various ways throughout the Roman Empire. By this time, there was all kinds of nasty stuff that had already begun happening around Rome, the Roman Empire, um, under the hands of other emperors. Some of them took Christians, put them into the Colosseum, used them for entertainment so lions could chase them around and eat them publicly. Another um, terrible move by one of the emperors was to take Christians, tie them to posts at his parties, light them on fire so that they could have light at their parties. Just awful. And so Domitian, believe it or not, was worse than those guys. And 40,000 people in 92 AD are Christians are killed because of him. So you can imagine um, how the Christians are feeling at that time. Now, John somehow doesn't get killed for his faith. He's just exiled to Patmos. But <clears throat> I want you just to imagine, probably there was a point where he may have been targeted because he was the leader, put on the spot. Just pinch the incense and say, Caesar is Lord, John, and that's it. You're good. And he graciously refuses and so off to Patmos, he's taken. Now, if you go to Lazo um, Point, Point Holmes area, and you look towards Texada Island, you can see the quarry on the side of Texada. It's a little bit closer than from Patmos to the coast, but imagine that John <laughs> is in the quarry there facing Comox, and he can actually see Comox from there, like we can see the quarry from here. And he's thinking about the followers of Jesus in Comox. And then he can see Courtney, and he's thinking about the followers of Jesus in Courtney, and then he's wondering about those in Royston, and those in Union Bay, and then those up in Cumberland, and those in Merville, and those in Black Creek. How many is that? Seven. <laughs> and he's wondering, are they dying for their faith too? What are they facing right now? Are they afraid? Probably. Can you imagine being a Christian in that time? Are, you, are they afraid? He's, he's wondering if they're feeling the pressure 
He's wondering how they're handling themselves. He's wondering if they're confused. He's wondering if some are beginning to entertain compromise. And we know from some of the Roman records later on that around the time of Domitian, there were Christians who were um, noted to have you know, denied their faith to save their lives. And so John's wondering about them. Are, are some of them making compromising decisions and now denying Christ as Lord? And then he knows that not all of the communities are experiencing the same pressures and persecution. So there's other Christians elsewhere who are feeling the benefit of the wealth of the Roman Empire. And so he's, he's wondering about them. He's wondering if they're becoming complacent. You know, well, Rome ain't all that bad after all. Maybe this Jesus thing, you know, it can dial it down a little bit. And so he's wondering. And being the pastor that he is to those seven churches, he prays for them. And when he prays, God has a message for him to give to those churches, which is the revelation. Now, he writes it out, and it's written in three ways. This is a bit of review for those of you who were with us last week, introduction for those who weren't. Three things you need to know about the revelation. Number one, it's a letter. It's from a real pastor to real people in real churches, and we have the benefit, and all of church history since then has had the benefit of hearing and reading this as well. It's a letter. Secondly, it's a prophecy. And as we talked about last week, prophecy, biblical prophecy, is primarily about declaring what God's saying. Sometimes it includes some predictions, but it's primary about God's word being declared. And then thirdly, it's an apocalypse. The first words of the revelation are an apocalypse, or the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And like we talked about last week, as a people in this church family, and probably it would do really well for Christians everywhere, we need to unlearn apocalypse. Because what it means to our world today is not what it meant when John penned the word 2,000 years ago. Apocalypse does not mean, and here's a few things of review, uh, apocalypse does not mean disaster or end. But that's kind of what modern times and modern Christians might think, but that is not what it actually meant when John was writing it. In his world, the word Apocalypse meant unveiling. Did you like that effect? <laughs> we're, we're trying some new material here. I think you fall asleep, so we'll just, there might be an echo at some point. Unveiling is what apocalypse means. Last week we had, uh, for Father's Day, smoked, bacon-wrapped, chicken drumsticks. And it sounded like it was well-received from most people. Um, and there were some who followed their noses into the parking lot. They could smell something. They could see certain things, but they didn't know exactly what it was until what? They went up near to the smoker, and somebody graciously opened it, and it was an unveiling, and there was an apocalypse. <gasps> I see. I behold what's really going on now. And that's what Revelation is like. Revelation is saying... You are seeing things with your natural eyes, you're hearing things with your ears, but there is a greater reality going on behind a curtain, and the book of Revelation wants to show you what that is. Now, a couple other things about apocalyptic literature. Um, it was commonly used in Greek writing, Roman writing around that time, so it, we learned from that as well. It's not unique just to the book of Revelation. In fact, it's found in other parts of the Bible elsewhere. And wherever you find apocalyptic literature includes exaggerated and embellished Symbolism. Do we find any of that in Revelation? Yeah, thousands upon thousands of examples, I think. Um, and apocalyptic literature is marked by this vividness. Why is it so vivid? To make it memorable for people. They didn't have, everybody didn't have their own scroll. Everybody didn't have computers and technical devices to record and remember and easily access things themselves. So the more vivid a message was, the more it captured their imagination and the more it stuck with them through the hard moments of life. So why was Revelation written? I want you just to think with me for a few moments. What were those first Christians of the first century feeling? What were they afraid of? I think they were very aware of cultural pressure. I think they were very aware of the gods of their age. And I think they were tempted towards either compromise or complacency. Now that was their world 2,000 years ago. I know that we're not facing persecution like they were then. But would you agree that we're facing some of the same kind of things right now? Cultural pressures, gods of our age, 
the temptation as a follower of Christ to compromise at times or to just sort of fade into a complacent version of faith. We're in the same kind of boat. Here I offer you a bit of a summary or a purpose statement for the book of Revelation. The Revelation was written so that followers of Jesus who are facing the pressures of culture and the gods of their age could see what is actually going on behind the scenes so that they could see or behold who the Lord and Savior of the world really is and settle once and for all who their allegiance, trust, and worship exclusively belongs to. Let's work with that as a summary, as the purpose of the book of Revelation. If we had to summarize it even or condense it even more, two words or four, I give you this, behold Jesus. There's the two-word version of Revelation. If you can handle remembering four words, it's behold Jesus, and then the application or the response to that is worship, and it is witness. So, Revelation chapter one, verse nine. I asked you last week to spend some time reading verse nine through 20. I hope some of you did that, and that your hearts are ready with some question and curiosity. Maybe you've come with a heart that's already full because you've been feasting on all that lives in this passage already. It's exciting. What we're gonna find in this selection of scripture today is actually the first vision of Jesus that appears in the book of Revelation. There's a series of them. Can anybody guess how many there are in the book of Revelation? That was a good guess. You're right. There are seven revelations or visions of Jesus, and this is the first one. Now, I don't always do this, but if there was a title to this message, today's title would be this. Look, then Listen, look, then listen. I've referred to this before, but I wanna, it's the best illustration I've got for this. This word behold shows up so often in Revelation, and John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is constantly inviting his hearers and his readers to see something. And um, our, our third child, Lucy, especially at a young age and still in different ways, just always wants other people to join in on the experience of whatever's happening or has just happened. And when she was little, her volume was always at 11. And um, we'll just show a little video right now. I think we've got, this is Lucy. How old is she here? Yeah. 14 months. Yeah. So she's talking about her brother, Jack. That was the first word, Jack. Now Jack was upstairs and she was trapped by the gate downstairs and she was announcing to us where Jack is and then she was announcing to Jack a very important message that we haven't decoded still. But um, that played a bit softly for you so we didn't burst your eardrums because in real time that was a scene. And that's what she was like all the time, it was great fun. But she had this phrase that she developed not long after around that age when she wanted us to see something that was happening, or she wanted to tell us about something, she would use this phrase, ha dis, and it meant look at this. But I just said it very nicely, like a nice Canadian. She was as loud as possible. Ha dis, she would just command the attention of whatever setting she was in, and say, you must look at this right now. It was almost impossible not to turn your head and wonder, well, okay, what's happening here? And so when John writes the word behold, he's summoning little Lucy, and he's saying, ha this. And so the message today is look, then listen. Ha, this, then listen. You with me? We're good. Okay. So in the midst of our realities, there is something that the Spirit of God wants us to see and wants us to hear. So turn with me now. We're going to begin. We're going to just sort of go section by section through this text today. It starts this way. I, John, your brother and your companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. Okay, so you can tell a little bit about the world that's going on around John, what the Christians are going through, and where John's at as well, just by what he says there. I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Listen to verse 10. On the Lord's day, what day do we think he might be meaning here? Sunday. Sunday, I'm gonna come back to that. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Isn't this beautiful? On the Lord's day, now I asked, oh, what day is that? Some, I heard some people say Saturday, some people say Sunday. 
Uh, in the Old Testament Jewish world, the day of rest and worship was the Sabbath, which was Saturday. Uh, and it was one of the Ten Commands to observe Saturday as a day of rest and worship. And the, the Ten Commands find expression and new reality in the New Covenant through Jesus Christ. But interestingly, that command is disobeyed <laughs> and changed in the New Covenant because it moves from Saturday to Sunday. Why Sunday? It's the day of resurrection. It's the day that the Lord was raised from the dead. It changed worship forever. It changed weekdays forever and weekends forever. So I guess my question for you at this just little moment is, are Sundays special? Are Sundays special? It's interesting through church history, even recent church history, like the last you know, 50 years or 100 years or so, as followers of Jesus, we kind of go back and forth between Sunday is very, 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 very holy and special, and then after a while we're like, wait a minute, but God made all the days holy and we can worship and rest on all the days and so all the days are holy. And I don't know where you found yourself on the spectrum, but John saw that Sunday was a special day. He's doing whatever he does as a very old man on a quarry on Patmos, but he's aware, today's Sunday. It's the Lord's day. And he's got nobody with him to worship with that we know of. And what does he do? He still observes worship and prayer on the Lord's day. Why? Because Sunday is special. It is the day of resurrection. There is no longer a burden saying if you miss church on Sunday, you're now a bad person or you've sinned before God somehow. But we have maybe at times failed to realize how special and important Sundays are. Is Sunday special? Absolutely, because of the resurrection. Let me ask you in a different way. Uh, are birthdays special? Is an anniversary special? I said I was going to say something else about marriage, uh, but Laura slipped out. Today is our anniversary. So I was going to say all kinds of nice, wonderful public things about her, but um, we'll just carry on. Um, <laughs> anniversaries are special. If you don't think so, try forgetting one. <laughs> they are special. Now, it's interesting because the anniversary, which acknowledges when the marriage began, the marriage was meant to make all the days special, right? All the days are special because we're together and we're married and God's brought us together and love and all that. But try saying that on the anniversary that you forgot. You know, no, 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 all the days are special. You know, I celebrate all the days. Okay, it doesn't work that way, does it? Sundays are special. They are holy. It's the day that we give special attention and memory to the fact that Jesus is no longer in a grave, but he rose from the dead and signaled the greatest victory and transformation in all existence and history ever. Sundays matter, friends. And look what happens on this Sunday. Suddenly the Spirit is at work. He says, I was, on the Spirit. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. The Spirit has unique things he does on the Lord's Day. Does he work all the week long? Absolutely, but there's unique things that happen on the Lord's Day. And what else happens? We discover he sees Jesus and he hears something special, unique and important from Jesus. Jesus decided to speak this on a Sunday. Isn't that amazing? Jesus wants to reveal himself all week long. Yes, Sundays in a special way for you. He has something important to say to you all week long. Yes, something for all of us in a special way on Sundays. In Comox Pentecostal Church, we gather together regularly on Sundays because it's the day of the Lord's resurrection. And there are two main things that we as a leadership think about for Sundays. Number one, we want to encounter the living, risen Christ by his spirit and in the love of the Father together in worship. Encounter God in worship. Number two, be equipped by his word for lives that make an impact in our world. Sundays in CPC are about encounter and equip. Do Sundays matter? Yeah, I thought so. It's good that you say yes, otherwise I have to just keep preaching on that one, and we need to move on here. So yet Sundays are important. I'm glad that you're here with us today. Let's carry on. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. This summer, we're going to go one by one through these churches and hear what God's saying to them and how that speaks to us now. Verse 12. I turned 
around to see the voice. Isn't that an interesting language? Have you ever tried to see a voice? I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. Okay, we're gonna pause there for a moment. What we have right now is, is John is helping to see something about Jesus. We're seeing his title in this text, and we're seeing something about his clothing. So I want us just to notice that together. What's the title that he sees about Jesus? He's the son of man. Have you heard that before in scripture? When you read the gospels, when Jesus speaks of himself, he refers to himself most often as the son of man. Now, where does that language come from? It's Old Testament language, and it meant a lot to the Jewish people that were anticipating the day that Yahweh would bring transformation to the world, and it's especially anchored out of a great text in Daniel chapter seven. Now, if you read through Daniel, think about the way we've talked about prophecy, and think about the way we've talked about uh, apocalyptic literature. You find some of that in the book of Daniel. Let me just read this to you from Daniel chapter seven. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Who do we think the Ancient of Days is? This is Yahweh, this is God himself. His clothing, so God's clothing, was as white as snow, and the hair of his head was white like wool. Interesting. Uh, fast forward in the same chapter to this part where it says this. There before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, just for interest's sake, which direction is the arrival? Is it towards earth or towards heaven? It's towards heaven, actually. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. So now we're we've heard about a son of man. We've got God, the Ancient of Days, but now we have this human who's riding on the clouds towards heaven, and listen to what it says. He approached the Ancient of Days, was led into his presence. He was given authority, given sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and people of every language worshipped him. Whoa, a man, a person being worshipped? His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So Israel had this in their heart. God is going to send some son of man who's going to have a unique and special relationship and access to God, and this son of man will usher our people and our nation into an era where the kingdom will never be destroyed, whatever that kingdom would be. And now Israel got caught up in believing it was actually going to be a nationalistic kingdom of Israel. But God had something far bigger in mind, didn't he? Now, <clears throat> as Israel, for hundreds and hundreds and like centuries and centuries, anticipated the arrival of a potential Messiah <clears throat> who might be this Son of Man figure, what do you think they hoped that this Son of Man would be like? What do you think they anticipated he'd be like? probably very powerful, right? And the more um, difficult the surrounding nations were to God's people, I think the more that Israel, God's people, anticipated and hoped for this, this figure of supreme power <clears throat> that could maybe stomp on the, the leaders that were creating interference. Now, listen to this. Eugene Peterson offers... I think a brilliant insight on the kind of son of man that Jesus actually is. He says this, it is difficult to recapture by an act of imagination the incongruity of a person self-designated as the son of man hanging, pierced, and bleeding on a cross. So here's Israel's son of man. They're expecting power, power, power. And you read this in the gospels too as even the disciples are disappointed that the revolution doesn't occur the way they thought it would. Here he is on a cross. The incongruity is less dramatic, but even more offensive when the Son of Man has dinner with a prostitute, stops off for lunch with a tax collector, wastes his time with children, 
when there were Roman legions to be chased from the land. <laughs> when he heals unimportant losers and ignores the high-achieving Pharisees and influential Sadducees. Jesus juxtaposed the most glorious title available to him and the most menial of lifestyles in the culture. He talked like a king and acted like a slave. He preached with high authority and lived like a vagabond. Jesus was systematic in this double affirmation. He was, in fact, son of man, given dominion and glory and kingdom. He was, in fact, completely at home in the ordinary, the everyday, the common. He did not give an inch in either direction. He was very God and very man. This is the son of man. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that captivating? Now, that's the title piece that we just read, son of man. There were things that we were, John was introducing us to see about Jesus' clothing. <clears throat> we're introduced to this idea that in this vision of Jesus, he's wearing a long robe. So to the first hearers and readers of this letter, they would have known right away what that means. Oh, he's, whoever this figure is, he's a priest. He's a priest. Priests would wear long robes. What do priests do? They present people to God, and they present God to people. Oh, that's something interesting for us to think about in this text, isn't it? Now, he's got a golden sash on. Maybe that's the closest thing that represents what you've seen in Jesus' storybook Bibles and stuff like that when you're a kid. Oh, he's all got this sash, but it's usually blue, and he looks Swedish. Um, <clears throat> that's not Jesus. <laughs> but the sash, it's, it's across his chest. Did you read that? Does that mean anything? Might that matter? Historically, if somebody was at work doing something, they would um, take a sash, if they had one, and it would be bound around their waist because they were at work. But if somebody was resting in the accomplishment of a finished task, guess where the sash goes? Up over the shoulder across. So here we see Jesus, and is he at work or is it finished? Whoa. That's got to be encouraging. Imagine you're one of the first century Christians who's just so worried about what the emperor is threatening. And you're actually considering compromise or just becoming a little laissez-faire about faith altogether. And then you remember something. Wait. At the cross, he said, it is finished. That means that if we follow Jesus, we're following one who's not fighting for victory. We're following one who is fighting from victory. It's done. And so instead of us being part of some sort of cosmic battle, trying to just win because we don't know if winning's possible, but we really hope it is, we're invited into God's family where he says, it's done. You can join me in the implementation if you like. If you don't, it's still done. It's still happening. It is finished. Isn't that beautiful? So he's got the sash on like that. Let's carry on in the text. 14 through 16. And here's where I think a lot of the meat and potatoes live. <clears throat> we go from uh, an introduction to his title and his clothing, and now we're going to see um, physical features of Jesus. There's a series of them. Can anybody guess how many there are in this series? Oh, there's seven physical features to be noticed about Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Listen, verse 14 through 16. His head and his hair were white as wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. Okay. Those of you that were with us through our series in Genesis, I introduced some of us to something perhaps new to you, but we're going to kind of revisit this idea. In ancient literature, there was a technique used from time to time called chiastic structure. Chiastic structure. Does somebody remember that from Genesis? It was actually on Easter Sunday we talked about this. I want to show you what chiastic structure looks like. 
It's when there's a clear beginning and an end to a story or a piece of literature, and in the middle is a focal point. <clears throat> and the way the ancients would draw attention to the focal point is that at the beginning and the end of the text or the story, there would be mirroring ideas or identical kind of ideas, or they would represent or be connected to somehow, uh, each other somehow. So the first detail would be connected to the very last detail, the second with the second last, third with the third last, and so on. And the way it was constructed was to draw the attention of the hearer or the reader as they reflected on the chiastic structure of whatever was being given, it was to draw their attention to the focal point, which was in the middle and had no mirroring uh, opposite <clears throat> or equal. Does that make sense? So what we find in these two verses, seven things describing Jesus physically. Remember, apocalyptic language. If any of you are still like, is this what Jesus looks like? Be released of that. <laughs> he does not look like this. He is very God, he's very man. But this is a description with messages within it leading us towards a focal point because of something that we must grasp from this text. So what are the things that we see in this text? First, <clears throat> his head. We're told about his head, aren't we? White like wool. Have we heard that anywhere before? Did we not just find that in Daniel? Who had the head that was white like wool in Daniel? Was it the son of man? It was the ancient of days. So what are we being reminded about Jesus here? He is the son of man and he is also God. This is Yahweh, son of man and ancient of days in one embodiment. So at the beginning of the, this two-verse chiastic structure, we have his head. At the end, what do we have? His face. Now, do head and face, do those kind of correlate and relate? Absolutely, they do. And what's happening with his face? It's shining like the sun. It sounds pretty glorious. Sounds like deity, doesn't it? There's this echoing message for us to grasp about Jesus that in spite of how wonderfully human he was, coming right down to the gutters of human life and relating with anyone and everyone. <clears throat> He's God. This is God. Now, what are we introduced to thirdly? Or secondly, actually, and it mirrors the second last. His eyes. And what's going on with his eyes? They're blazing like fire. Why are they blazing like fire? There's lots of good reasons out there for why this may be Here's what sticks with the, me the most. Where is Jesus standing in this vision? Among seven golden lampstands. We learn from the end of the text that the lampstands are the churches. So they're lampstands, which means they have a flame on top of them. So what does Jesus see? What's in his eyes? The reflection of what he's looking at. His beloved, he's looking at you, his church, with eyes of love. Well, that's got to be encouraging. Can you imagine being in the first century and you're worried about being killed or having your possessions taken away or your family murdered and you exiled somewhere else and you're thinking, is this all there is to life? Does anybody care about me? And John says, look at the son of man who is the ancient of days. Look at the fire in his eyes. Oh, he is thinking of me. In spite of what I'm feeling, in spite of what's going on around, I am loved by him. His eyes are upon me. That's good news. <clears throat> now, is there anything corresponding to the eyes? In that layer, yeah, the mouth. And what's coming out of the mouth? A sharp, a sharp double-edged sword. There is something, a message from God that's powerful, that's impacting, it's for the church, it's for the whole world. Now what's next? Feet. The feet are bronze, did you notice that? Is this a reference to anything? If you go back to Daniel 7 and some of the other areas in Daniel, you start piecing together some of the things that John, in this visionary experience, is referring back towards. <clears throat> in the time of Daniel, there was um, writings about a Babylonian king named Nebuchadnezzar. And there's a vision about this sort of idol of Nebuchadnezzar. And his feet are made of iron and clay. Now, iron is what? Strong, right? And clay is not. So why would you mix it together? I don't know, but that was what God was saying about the kingdom of Babylon. No matter how impressive it looks from here up, it cannot bear its own weight. It's destined to crumble and fall. And so does Jesus have similar feet? No, his feet are bronze. Isn't that interesting? Now, bronze is a mixture of copper and iron. 
Iron is strong, but it rusts. Copper is pliable, so not strong, but it does not rust. So when you mix them together, very strong, will not rust. These are the feet of Jesus. He alone has the strength to carry the weight of the world upon his feet. Every other kingdom, every other system is doomed to fail. Some of you are paying attention to what's been going on in Russia recently. Some of you, as you watch it, you're like, I think, is it falling apart? Here's what I, I, this isn't even prophetic. It's just me knowing what God says about reality. It will fall. And so will every other nation on earth, even the best ones. Because they're not built on the bronze feet of Jesus. And friends, it's not even about getting a nation to somehow prop itself up on the feet of Jesus. You can't, a nation cannot be saved and go to heaven. <laughs> but people can be. So feet, anything corresponding to feet? On the other side, we find hands. What's going on with Jesus' hands? In his right hand, which signifies, uh, the right hand always meant this is something that's happening, something's going on. Seven stars are held in his hand. Now we know from the end of this text that it signifies angels or the messengers of the seven churches. So that's the very clear application. But there's probably a subtle secondary thing Jesus wants his readers and hearers to understand about the seven stars. In the ancient world of Jesus' time and of John's writing, <clears throat> the Greeks and the Romans believed that the whole cosmos was run by seven planets. It was the seven stars that they had studied. There was only seven in the solar system that they knew of. And so that was their understanding. Now, if you're a recent convert to Christ in the ancient Roman world and you're part of one of the first churches and now you're thinking, I might die for this faith in Jesus, you see Rome in its power. You see the emperor in its power and you're like, you know, it really seems like they're ruling the world right now. And so what's the message that God wants to send to them? What about to you when you feel like, you know, who's in control here? Is it actually the government? Or is there subversive things behind the scenes that's actually in control? Do we have to expose that somehow? Some of us wonder if there's a health thing that's in control of my life right now, a diagnosis or this or that. Here's the good news. The seven stars, the planets are not in the hands of Rome, not in the hands of Caesar, they're in the hands of Christ. There is one alone who has the authority to rule the cosmos, and he does well, and that's the living Lord Jesus Christ. So, head, face, eyes, mouth, feet, hands. What's the focal point? What's the one thing that's not mirrored? You're seeing it already. Let me read it for you. His voice was like the sound of rushing water. The focal point of this description of Jesus is his voice. And guess what they do here? They serve us so well in this text. When it describes his voice, it describes his tone. <laughs> Have you ever been on the receiving end of a text where you're like, I think there's two or three ways I could understand this text, depending on how this person's saying it. Maybe you've gotten an email like that. We had a family friend. She was just beloved to our family as, when I was growing up. She wasn't actually an auntie, but we all called her auntie. And when she got onto email, it's like she had duct taped caps lock on. And so as a family, we just kind of chuckled because Auntie Wendy was always yelling at us. And she did happen to be kind of the person you had to tiptoe around to. So it was always a little bit like, is it actually, this might be a yelling time. We don't know. She could have been whispering and we didn't know. It looked like yelling and we were all much afraid. <clears throat> to the church that was reading this in a scroll. This is a service given by the Spirit saying, hey, before I give you the words that I'm gonna say, I'm gonna give you the tone of voice that I'm delivering it in. Like many waters, wow. Have you ever been by a huge waterfall? My parents live about an hour and a half past Kamloops in a town called Clearwater, which has Helmkin Falls, larger, taller than Niagara Falls by a lot. Not as wide, but we visited it a few times, it thunders. And it's talking about many waters, so it's not just one of those waterfalls, it's many of them, many of them, many of them. It's this overwhelming, powerful, great authority, not intimidating, but awe-inspiring and beautiful. This stunning voice has something to say, and this is the point of the whole text today. There, we, Jesus wants us to see something, he wants us to hear something, and so it leads to moments like this. 
He has something to say to the church of 2,000 years ago that were facing pressures of culture, gods of their age, temptation to compromise or become complacent. He has something to say to the church of today, to you and I right now in 2023 who are facing similar kind of things in different ways. What might he want to say? Listen to this, verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And he placed his right hand upon me. And he said, do not be afraid. What do you think the church of then was feeling most more than anything? Don't be afraid. Now what's so amazing? God could have just sent a little short scroll to them from John and Patmos and said, just write a little note saying, don't be afraid. That'll do it. But instead, he sends this beautiful description of what God is like in the person of Jesus Christ. And he points towards a few things he must say to them. And the first thing out of his mouth is, don't be afraid. 2,000 years ago, don't be afraid. To you today who feels pressure at work, pressure at school, bend on this, bend on that. Jesus isn't really. There's other ways. There's this, there's that. Don't Be afraid, don't compromise, don't become complacent, don't be afraid, set your eyes on the living, risen Christ. And he says this, don't be afraid. I am the first and I am the last. I've been there, I'll be there. I am the living one. I was dead and had this. He says, behold, he's inviting the hearers, look at me. I'm alive. You want hope 2,000 years ago? You want hope today? He's alive. The most mysterious, scariest of all enemies. We're afraid of all kinds of things in this world, but we get less afraid of things when we can understand it or experience it or control it somehow. None of that can happen with death. None of it. The moment you breathe your last, the moment your heart stops, you actually don't know for sure what happens next. It's scary. It's mysterious. And the church of 2,000 years ago, they knew their life might be on the line because of their faith. And so Jesus is offering them great hope. He says, look at me. That mysterious, scary thing, even scarier than the emperor, even scarier than being rejected in 2023 or canceled by somebody on social media, That enemy, I passed through the grave to the other side. And he didn't do it just once so that you and I could be disembodied spirits and float around for the rest of eternity. He, as it already has said in resurrection, is the firstborn of the dead, which means there are others to be resurrected, meaning all his people, meaning the whole cosmos, the whole earth, his whole heart, his whole plan is to resurrect everything that will follow him and love him. You and I and the world. He's reminding his people, you've got to hear. If you're afraid of death, if you're afraid of the emperor, if you're afraid of things in 2023, I'm alive. I've been through the worst of it and I conquered it. And I'm going to make it all new again. I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades, which means the grave. You see, the emperor thought he had control over you because he could threaten you with death and put you in a grave. But guess what? He might put you in there, but I got the keys to get you out. I busted out of that place. I know the code. I'll get the door open for you too. Oh, is that not good news? Oh, is Jesus not astonishing? He's wonderful. Now you can see why I think Revelation is about witness. (laughs) This is good news. This is why it's about worship. How can we not respond but worship, would you stand with me right now? I want to say a few more things, and then we're just going to respond in worship together for a few moments. About a month ago or so, some of you heard me reference this, a great um, Christian mind of our time, Tim Keller, died. And... Um, in the year leading up to his death, he had a very difficult diagnosis and knew that this was coming. He was interviewed several times, and one I've watched a few times. And he's asked, you know, how do, how do people have hope in the midst of difficulty in the world like this right now? And, and he said this, he said, you know, in the last year, my wife and I have spent a lot of time crying. Life is shorter than we wanted it to be. 
and we see that this end is nearing. And he said, but you know, and I don't mean to sound too simple, but he just said, if Jesus really was raised from the dead, it's all going to be all right in the end. Because as we'll find out later in Revelation, the one on the throne who is the Lamb, who is the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days, says this, Behold, I'm making all things new. Wow. If, I, I want you to just take a moment right now. Some, some of you, most of us, came into this room with something we're worried about right now. A family member, a friend, a loved one, a health situation. Some of us know what it's like to feel afraid or intimidated by something. Some of us know what it's like to feel the temptation towards compromise or complacency. Whatever it is you're afraid of or worried about right now, if Jesus really rose from the dead, it's gonna be made new. It will be made new. It will be made new. Is that not registering? It will be made new. That relationship, that body, that circumstance, that country you're concerned about, those people there, there's only one who has the keys and authority to make it. It's him. So here's where this passage lands. Two questions. Number one, where is Jesus? And number two, what is he doing? In this text, where is he? He's floating above his church somewhere, kind of looking down distantly at them. No, he's off to the side saying, you're so impure, you've got so many problems, get your act together, I'll get close once you do. No, where is he? The text says, he is among when we read through the seven churches, boy, they were facing a lot of pain from the outside put upon them. Where does he go when we're in pain? Away? No, he comes close. He's among. And when we read through the seven churches, they've got a lot of problems. And guess who made them? They did. <laughs> and Jesus was like, oh, I'm offended. I'm out of here. I'm among. You might have pain in your life. You might have problems. Some of them of your own doing. Where is he? He's among. What is he saying? I'm alive. How it is, I want you to see it. I'm, I'm alive. Before I conclude in prayer, Father, our prayer is that by the Holy Spirit, we could just become good at beholding. May the eyes of our hearts behold Jesus. Amen. Be blessed head into your week. If you, the Lord's going to continue leading. If you want to linger in worship, please do. If you do want to socialize, please head out just so that those who want to receive prayer can do so right.